Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 13 through 16. First Timothy chapter 6. And before we read the text, let us come before the Lord and pray that he would bless his word. Lord, we thank you again for the privilege of being able to come to gather together and worship you. We thank you for the privilege of being able to pray to you whenever we want. We thank you for the privilege of being able to sing our love for you. We thank you for the privilege of fellowship. We thank you for the privilege of being able to read your word and hear it preached and have it change our lives. You, Lord God, are so very good to us beyond what we can even possibly reckon. I pray, Lord God, as your word goes out today that you would use your spirit to have its full effect in our lives, Lord, that it would pierce our hearts, that it would change us, and that it would shape us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our hope. We thank you for that in his name. And all God's people said, amen. First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The late author Jerry Bridges once wrote, God will never allow any action against you that is not in accord with his will for you, and his will is always directed to our good. So while you guys have your Bibles out, if you wouldn't mind, turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah. And for those who might not be so familiar with the Old Testament, Isaiah is located just after the Song of Solomon. And if you're not familiar with that, you just find Psalms. That's the biggest book in the Old Testament. And turn right to Proverbs and keep turning right through, through Ecclesiastes and then finally the Song of Solomon and then you will find Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 6 is what we're looking for, specifically verse 8. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8. Isaiah writes, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Now this right here is a really famous passage of scripture for many Christians. 
It's a scripture that's been used over and over for, for decades to encourage Christians to get out and be on mission for God. And I have heard a message, I've heard many messages preached on this text about Isaiah's willingness to go out and to do the things that God is calling him to do. And the application to this message is typically something like this. We need to be more like Isaiah and we need to go out and, and do what God is calling us to do like Isaiah went out and did what God was calling him to do. That's usually the application of the message. We need to be like Isaiah, right? But in what way must we be like Isaiah? Because we never stop to ask the question, why did Isaiah say this? Why did he say, here I am, send me? Does he, does he say this because he wants to be an awesome man of God? Because he sees an opportunity to do something really great for the kingdom of God? Does he, does he say this because he wants to be famous? A famous prophet maybe, right? A great religious leader? Does he say this because he thinks that he's capable of fulfilling the mission that God might have for him? Or does he say this because he thinks that he can please God with his efforts? that maybe that if he'll do a good job, that God will reward him. Why is Isaiah willing to say the words, send me? And then why then should we be like him if that's the way that it is? Well, the answer is found in the text just before this. In fact, if you'll look with me to verse one in that same text in Isaiah, Isaiah writes, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting high upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I saw and I said, Woe is me. Why would he say that? For I am lost, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And then it reads... And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. You see, in this text, what we see is Isaiah coming face to face with the glory of God. He sees a glimpse of how glorious God is. And in light of that glory, he sees himself for who he is. An unworthy sinner a man of unclean lips, living in a world filled full of sinful people, and he confesses that's who he is, and the Lord heals him and atones his sin. This, by the way, is why Isaiah could stand up and would stand up and should stand up and say the words, here I am, send me. The reason why Isaiah can sell out and do what God was calling him to do is not because of who Isaiah is as a person. It is because of who God is and because of what God has done for him. You see, that is what motivates Isaiah. It's not a sense of self-worth. It is not a sense of grandeur. It is not a desire for gain. 
What motivates Isaiah is coming face to face with the reality of who God is in his holiness and in his glory and then understanding what God has done in his overwhelming grace for him. It's not about Isaiah. It is about who God is. And this, by the way, is the motivation for all those who truly serve God. For those who live on mission for, for Christ. This is the motivation of all those who've done incredible things throughout history for God. This is what motivates men and women around the world today to boldly stand up for their faith, even when it costs them their lives. It is the understanding of who God is in His glorious nature and His perfect character and what God has done for them by His grace. That is the motivation. Who God is and what God has done. And that, brothers and sisters, is the point of the text before us today. The true motivation that will drive anyone to do anything for God is understanding who He is and remembering what He has done. If you remember last week, we talked about how Paul was urging Timothy to be the man of God that he was being called to be and to complete the task of setting the church in Ephesus back on its theological foundation. The Ephesian church, which was founded by Paul and once was faithful to the gospel, had allowed unqualified leaders to come in and begin to take over the leadership of the church and they begin to teach false doctrines and false theology. And this led to all kinds of behavioral issues inside the church and the, and the church basically slipped off of its theological foundation. And whenever the foundation goes, right, the rest of the, the edifice is, is doomed to go. The church was basically falling apart inside out. But Paul left Timothy there to bring reformation to the church and to set it right. And he wrote a letter to him to remind Timothy what he was to do. Timothy was to put an end to the false teaching and to discipline the false teachers. And he was to make sure that the people that actually had leadership in the church, whether it was the elders who had oversight or the deacons who, who actually were the servants of the church, that they met the biblical qualifications. And then he was to lovingly but firmly address the behavioral issues in the church. And he was to do this through the preaching of the word, and through, the, through loving church discipline. And this obviously was a huge task because he was not sent there by Paul to holler at them and to break heads and to, and to see heads roll. That wasn't how he was supposed to do this. He was not there to rule with an iron fist. He was sent there to lead the church through faithful work as a shepherd, through faithfully handling the word of God and living as an example of godliness in an ungodly world, and patiently and lovingly correcting those who were in error. And to say this is a monumental task would be an, a grave understatement. It was one that required all that Timothy had to give, all of the gifts that he was given, all the skills, all of his strength, all of his energy. And in the last section, Paul, right, mindful of this, in chapter 6, Paul encourages Timothy to go all in and sell out, to hold nothing back. He encourages him to give all he has at the task at hand. He calls him to lay it all on the line in order to complete the mission that he was assigned. And he tells Timothy that he is to flee the evil of false teachers and pursue the righteousness of true men of God and to fight to preserve the orthodox doctrines of the, of the faith and to grab hold of eternal life in, in that moment and to live as if he could never fail or never die. Paul tells Timothy to hold nothing back for this task and give everything he has. 
And in today's text, Paul tells him why he is to do that. Why is he to sell out to this calling? And that's what we're going to see is Paul is not going to appeal to Timothy's ego. He's not going to tell Timothy, just think of how awesome it's going to feel once you get that church back on track. Right? He doesn't tell Timothy, right, this is really going to be a, a statement of your leadership abilities. He's not going to tell Timothy that you, if you do this, you can write your own ticket because you can have whatever job you want to if you complete this task. He doesn't tell Timothy, hey, you know, guess what? We're going to record your name in scriptures so that people can look to you and remember you for thousands of years as a faithful man of God. No. Paul is going to tell Timothy the reason why you need to finish this race and give all that you have is not because of who you are, but rather who God is in his glory and what God has done for you. That's what he's going to tell him in this text. So, so look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. And as you look at this text, I want you to notice the very obvious detail about this. Verses 13 through 16 are not four separate sentences. They are one, one long run-on sentence. Notice the punctuation. The sentence begins with the words I, or the word I, in verse 13, and doesn't stop until you see the period after dominion in verse 16. And if you notice, there's a whole lot of commas in between there. This is a long, complex thought from Paul. That, by the way, is the interpretive challenge of this text, which means we need to pay attention to the grammar if we're going to understand what Paul is saying here. Now, you've heard me say multiple times, probably a hundred times maybe, that theology matters. Because it does. Well, guess what? So does grammar. Right? Grammar matters. Now, you probably won't see that on somebody's t-shirt anytime soon, right? But it still matters a lot. And so let's take a moment and look at the grammar and the structure of the sentence. Paul begins with, with three words. I charge you. And the reason why I stop here is because this is where we find both the subject and the object of this entire sentence. For all that Paul has to say in this long run-on sentence, both the subject and the object are in these three words, in this short phrase. The subject is I, Paul. And the object is what? You, Timothy. Right? And, the, and the reason why I point this out is because if we lose sight of this, the rest of this text simply becomes a mess of seeming, seemingly unconnected phrases and thoughts. Everything else just becomes a mishmash Right? And it makes it easy for people to take this text and twist it out of context. And so the subject is I, Paul. The object is you, Timothy. And then the verb that rounds out the predicate here, along with the word you, is the word charge. That is the action word. That's the verb. I, Paul, charge you, Timothy. This is the main clause of this entire sentence. The entire understanding of this entire text depends on what's happening here in these three words. And this word charge that Paul uses means to command with great authority. And we should be familiar by, the, by this point in the letter with this word because Paul used it a number of times in, Tim, in, in this letter already. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was, in, was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge 
command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then verse 5, he says, the aim of this charge, this command, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then again in verse 17, verse 18, Right? This charge, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies pre- previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Paul uses this word in a way that conveys command and authority. So there's not any doubt of what he's communicating here. And so Paul writes, I charge or I command you, which then should cause us to ask the question, well, what is it that he's actually commanding him with? What's he charging him with? What's he being commanded to do? Well, this is kind of tricky because when we look at this text, the answer to that question doesn't appear until verse 14. Because Paul has a little injection there, an interjection. But, but the answer to what he's charging him with begins in verse, is, is in verse 14. He says, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts, with this, starts the sentence with the first three words of uh, uh, verse, the first three words of verse 13, and then momentarily digresses and talks about God and Christ and there being a witness. And then he completes his thoughts in, in verse 14. That's the structure of this complicated sentence. And by the way, right, the main idea is here when you put it together, it goes like this. I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from approach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the main idea of the text, right? That's the part that we need to understand first before we understand anything else. I, Paul, charge or command you, Timothy, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. This is the main idea. Now, how long does Timothy need to to work to keep this commandment? Well, he says, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the main idea. And everything else in this verse follows in support of that. You see, this is the what of this entire sentence. This is what Paul is actually talking about. This is what he's trying to get across to Timothy. Everything else that we're going to see in this text is the why. Timothy says, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained. That is the what. Everything else about God and Christ is the why he needs to do that. Why? Do I command this? Because God is the giver of life, that Jesus is the faithful witness, that God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and worthy of honor. That's the why. And so what we see here in this long run-on sentence is the what and the why are all mixed together. This is, by the way, is why it's important to go slow when you're reading through Paul's letters and take the time to diagram the the sentences because because he's the king of run-on sentences and it's easy to miss what he's getting at. So let's, so let's take this apart one little piece at a time. And we're going to start right at the beginning. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now for us to understand this, we need to understand what Paul means by what he says. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. And this, again, poses another interpretive challenge because there are a lot of thoughts on what this actually means. I've read a lot of different respected commentators, and there's a lot of variation. For instance, John MacArthur says this commandment that Paul is referring to, he's saying that it refers to the entire word of God, that Timothy is to keep the entire word of God unstained. 
And then the expositor's commentary suggests that Paul is referring to the last exhortation that Paul gave about fleeing and pursuing and, and fighting and grabbing a hold of eternal life, that what he's talking about here was what he just finished talking about. And then Brian Chappell in his commentary says that Paul is referring to Timothy's ministry, that, that he is calling Timothy to uphold the faith and to finish what he had started. Now, I want you to understand, when I've looked at this and I've looked at the language, all three of these are possible, and, I've, and, I've, and there are lots of people that I respect or that will affirm all three of them. So I want you to hear me. All three are possible, but given for me the context and the purpose of this letter and the context of Paul's encouragement to sell out and fulfill his duty, I'm, I'm going to agree with Brian Chapel. I believe that what he's saying to Timothy is to keep unstained and free from reproach. What What he's saying to Timothy is to fulfill the ministry, to uphold the faith there in Ephesus, to finish what he started, to finish the task, the mission that he's been called to. That he's to faithfully complete his calling. And so with that, I believe it goes like this. I, Paul, charge you, Timothy, to keep this commandment, to uphold the Christian uh, faith unstained and keep it free from reproach. Timothy, you're to be faithful to execute your duties. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The church's job is to proclaim the gospel and protect the doctrines of the faith. Timothy, stand up and fight and uphold the faith and do so with honor and integrity. I believe that's the essence of what he's communicating to Timothy. That's what he's telling him to do. And he tells him to do so until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Timothy, you must do this and you can't quit and you can't stop and you can't rest until when? Until Christ comes. Whether it's his return to the earth at the end of the age, or whether it's when he calls you home when you die. That's when you can quit, Timothy. That is when you can stop. That's when you can give up on the mission that I've given you. Which, by the way, reminds me of the last verse of the great hymn in Christ alone. It goes like this. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Paul says to sell out and to, and to fulfill your ministry and uphold the faith until Christ comes and relieves you. That's when you can stop. That is the essence of this sentence. The rest of this is the reason why. Again, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Notice that Paul does not tell Timothy to finish the work because, uh, because Timothy is just this awesome young man of God. Right? He doesn't tell him that he's, that he's faith, to be faithful because he might gain something for being faithful. He doesn't tell him to do this in light of who Timothy is. He says to do this in light of who God is. And Paul begins at this point to paint for Timothy a glorious picture of who God is. The first thing I want you to notice, he says, I charge you in the presence of God. Think about that. 
that God not only is witness to what Paul is saying, right? God is present in the moment. Let that sink in for just a second, right? God is present in the moment. This is a doctrine that so many of us Christians, I think we just take for granted or don't think about or we just forget about. Especially when it comes to living our day-to-day lives away from one another and away from the church. That God is always present. That God is simultaneously everywhere present in the universe. Which means right now that God is here and now. That God is present with you here and now. And that God will be present with you when you leave here and go to lunch. And that God will be present with you when you go home after that. And guess what? When you get to work tomorrow or go to school tomorrow, God's going to be present with you then. And God's going to be present when you say loving things to your spouse. And God is going to be present with you. God is going to be present with you when you quietly curse somebody under your breath. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, God is present with you. In fact, the doctrine of God's omnipresence or God's being ever-present goes like this. Number one, God is present in every point in space. There's not a point in space that God does not exist. There's not a space between the molecules that God is not there. Do you understand that? That God is everywhere simultaneously present in all of the entire cosmos. There's not a place that he's not. Number two, God is fully present in his whole being at every point in space, which means that God's leg isn't over there and his arm isn't you know, like in Pakistan. God is fully present in every point in space, no matter where. And number three, the mind bender is that God cannot be contained by any space, no matter how large. Even though he's fully present in every space, there's not a space that can contain him. God is greater than the, even the material universe itself. The material universe can't contain him. That's the mind-blowing truth of the presence of God. And that truth should be enough to motivate us to live on mission for Christ. And that truth should both be concerning and comforting to us at the same time. Since God is present, nothing escapes his gaze. Nothing. Every action, every thought, every word, God is witness to. You understand that, right? That's simultaneously comforting and terrifying at the same time. I think this is why King David in Psalm 139 says this. He goes, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you were there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you were there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Nothing escapes God's notice. Nothing escapes his gaze. He is witness to it all. You cannot fool him. You cannot distract him. You cannot hide anything from him, which means nothing you do and nothing you say and nothing you think is in secret. None of it. He sees it all and he knows it all. Whether we are faithful, whether we are not. 
whether we pretend or whether we're honest. But more importantly, because God is ever-present, because of those who are in Christ, He is always there when we need Him. That's the comforting part of this. You see, when it seems that all the world is collapsing around you, and all of your worst-case scenarios come true in your life, and you feel completely abandoned and alone by everyone and everything, you can trust the fact that God is still with you. That He is present with you in the darkness. And for those who are in Christ, more than that, God is not only present with you, God the Holy Spirit indwells you. God the Holy Spirit is promised to lead you and guide you and comfort you and strengthen you. That is why we ought to sell out for the mission of God. But again, notice he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. You see, God is not only present, but he is the author of life itself. What a stunning thing that we forget as a culture. What a stunning thing that we forget as a nation, as we presuppose upon God's patience with us and go ahead and be okay with the murder of unborn children. God is the author of life. God is the creator of life. And the reason for that is because he is the creator of all things. God created everything, every molecule, every galaxy, every puppy, every blade of grass. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of time and space and all matter. In fact, there's only two modes of existence that can, that's possible. There is God, and then there is all that God created. That's the only two modes of existence possible. There is nothing else. There is God himself who is uncreated, and then there is all that he has created. And everything else besides God fits into the created part. He is the one who created all things. He is the one who gives life. And what that means for us then is that everything and everyone belongs to him. Every atom, every dollar, every rock, every star, every living creature was created by him for him. And it exists for his purpose, which means you exist for his purpose. God is the ever-present creator of all things, who is the one who gives you the very breath that you have to live. The very next breath you're going to take is a gift that he has given you from his own hand. And again, that by itself is enough to sell out and serve him. But Paul continues on and says, I charge in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Not only, God is pre- not only is God present, not only is he the creator of all things, he is completely and totally and undisputedly sovereign. And that's the point that Paul's making here, which means he is the undisputed ruler of all things. And notice how, what Paul says, that he is the only sovereign. That word that he uses here, only, he didn't use it simply as a qualifier to, to emphasize the point, but rather he uses word because it can, carries with it a very Jewish idea 
and a very Jewish understanding of who God is. He is the only one, the only one. There is none like him. He only is the ever-present king. He is the only creator of all things. He only is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He only is the undisputed master and ruler of the entire cosmos. He is the only living God. He is the only sovereign. Now, if there is a doctrine that tends to ruffle feathers and make some, unchrist some Christians uncomfortable, it is the sovereignty of God. And it's not the fact that people don't want God to be in control. People do want God to be in control. They want him to be in control when, when everything goes haywire, especially. They want to believe for a fact that when things go bad, God's in control. They want him to be in control. In enough control to rescue, and enough control to save. Right? They want him to be in control of most things. They just don't want him to be in control of all things. And here's... But, but, but the thing is about sovereignty, about God's rule. It's an all or nothing proposition. There is no middle ground. If God is not sovereign over all, he's not sovereign at all. By definition, those things are mutually exclusive. Either he's sovereign over all, or he is not sovereign at all. As the late theologian A.W. Pink once wrote, he says, to say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty the possessor of all power in heaven and earth so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose or resist his will. The sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of the God of scripture is absolute, irresistible and infinite. To put it now in its strongest form, we insist that God does as he pleases, only as he pleases and always as he pleases, that whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of that which he decreed in eternity. The late R.C. Sproul affirmed of God that if God is not sovereign, then he is not God. The Bible repeatedly affirms God's sovereignty, that he is indeed omnipotent and in control of all things. Right? And for those who labor for Christ, this truth is a great comfort to us. Right? As Jonathan Edwards once wrote, God's sovereignty has ever appeared to me as a great part of his glory. Right. It has often been to my delight to approach God and adore him as a sovereign God. You see, the truth is, if God is sovereign and in control, then you can truly trust him. That's the truth about his sovereignty. If he is fully in control, you can trust him. In fact, I want you to listen to how Paul reflects on, on God's sovereignty in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, beginning in verse 28, And we know... And this, we know, is very, very forceful. We are confident. We know for a fact. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because God is sovereign. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why? Because God is sovereign. Paul next asked the question in light of that sovereignty then. This is what makes this next question make sense. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? Why? Because God is sovereign. He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall, shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or the Taliban or governmental overreach? As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, the worst of things, in the darkest places, all of these things, we are more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because God is sovereign. And by the way, that's enough, right? That ought to be enough to motivate us to uphold the faith. That ought to be enough to motivate us to do what God calls us to do. That, that ought to be enough why for us to do the what. And so Paul tells Timothy, finish the race, fight the fight, stand up for the faith until the coming of Christ and then Paul tells Timothy the reason why is because God is ever-present and is the creator of all things and because he is sovereign and in control. And then he says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, again, because this is a complex text, text, I have uh, seen people argue about what it means for God to dwell in light, in an unapproachable light. And I've, I've heard people debate and get hung up about the fact that no one can see God or no one has ever seen God because there's other texts that allude to being able to see God, but obviously not fully who God is. The problem is, is when they focus on the minor details like that is they miss Paul's point. Notice Paul says that God alone has immortality. This is the clue. What does that mean? God is the only thing in existence that is completely eternal. That's what that means. God alone is the only thing in all of existence that is eternal. God alone, because he is the uncreated creator, is the source of all other things. He is the source of life. God alone is eternal. Now, we throw those words around as if we truly understand what, we, what they mean, but we don't. If you really ponder eternity, what you would come to understand is him being eternal means he is completely unique in a way that we can't even fully fathom. That he is one of a kind. That he is completely unlike us. That God is different in such a fundamental way that we can't even like put the two categories together. He is eternal. We are temporal. He is immortal. We are mortal. He is self 
existent. We are completely dependent upon him for existence. The difference between the two are staggering to a proportion that we couldn't even possibly start to rationalize. God is far and away different from us, is what Paul is communicating here. And then he says, in light of that, God lives in unapproachable light. Now, Paul's saying this, he's not literally saying that God lives in an abode made up of light that's really, really bright. Number one, there's nothing big enough to contain God for him to live in, right? And number two, there's no light that is outside of God. The reason being is he is the source of light. What Paul is saying is that God, by his very nature and character, is so glorious and so awesome that the only way you can describe him is to say that God lives or dwells in light that is so bright that you can't even come near it. That's the point he's making. It's kind of like the idea of the sun, we can stand outside and we can see by its light, but we can't look and stare directly into it, right? Lest we go blind. And we certainly wouldn't want to get on a, a ship and get out in his face and get close to it. That's how Paul describes God's glory. And because of that, no one has ever fully seen God. You can't. Just, it's, it's impossible. No man has ever fully seen him because we can't get that close to him because he's so glorious the human eye cannot behold it which takes us again back to Isaiah chapter 6, where the seraphim go around the throne and they have wings to cover their faces. Why? Because even those perfect, unspoiled creatures can't even behold the glory of God. And what do they do in light of God's glory? They fly around worshiping God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory continually, night and day. And see, so what Paul is describing when he talks about God's immortality and him dwelling in light and being unseen by human eyes is God's holiness. It's God's holiness. That's what Paul is talking about. That uniqueness of God that is so different from us that makes him so glorious that we can't even like look at him. And because he is one of a kind and because he is unique, he's the most valuable thing in existence. In essence, Paul is telling Timothy, the reason why you ought to be faithful to your calling is because God is ever-present. God is the creator of all things. God is sovereign and God is completely holy. And because of that, God is completely glorious. And because God is completely glorious, he is worthy of all honor and all of our worship. Notice Paul says, he who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Perhaps the greatest reason for Timothy to be faithful and to sell out for the mission that he was called to is the simple truth that God is worthy. Just simply by who God is, he's the greatest treasure there is to be, to be had. He is worthy of all honor. He is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of all adoration. He is worthy of all our love. He is worthy by his nature 
of all our worship. And the thing that we need to understand is that worship is so much more than just singing songs on Sunday morning. That worship is so much more than just hearing preaching. That worship is more than just getting together for fellowship. That worship, that, that, that worship is so much more than what we just do on Sunday morning. Worship is our entire life. Because the Christian life is to be worship. And that means everything you do, everything that you do in your life has the potential to be an act of worship toward God. From the way that you do your job and raise your kids to the way that you treat other people in your community or strangers that you meet only one time. Everything you do in your life has the potential to be an act of worship to bring honor and glory to God. Because he's worth it. This is why we ought to sell out and give all that we have in pursuit of the mission of Christ because it's an act of worship. And God is completely deserving and worthy of our worship. And so the what of this statement is Timothy is to fulfill his ministry and uphold the faith until Christ comes. And the why of this text is rooted in who God is in his nature. That he is the ever-present, holy, sovereign, creator of all things who is worthy of our worship. That is the why. And that would be enough, but that's not all that Paul says. He not only explains who God is, he explains what God has done. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. One of the things that we happen that happens to us is we often overlook the title that is ascribed to Jesus. We as Christians become very familiar with terminology and it just becomes, we become almost like blind to it at times. And I mean, even people who are not Christians will say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus as if that's his name. What we need to remind ourselves is that the word Christ is a Greek word that represents a Jewish word. And that Jewish word we transliterate into English as Messiah. When Paul says Christ, he is saying Jesus the Messiah. When he says Christ Jesus, he's saying Messiah Jesus. And what we need to realize is the Messiah is the one that was promised to come to make things right. Every time he says Christ, that's what he's referring to. He is the promised one to come to make things right. That the Messiah was the one who was to come to redeem God's people. The Messiah was the one who was to come to be the king. The Messiah was the one who would come and crush the serpent's head, promised all the way back in Genesis. But it says... Christ Jesus is reminding Timothy of God's promise to bring redemption through his son. And that's what Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of that promise. In fact, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. It's at the beginning of the Bible, so it should be easy to find really, really quick. Genesis 3. In verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right after the fall, 
immediately after the fall, God revealed that he was not caught off guard by what happened. He revealed that he had already had a plan of redemption. And from that moment, from that moment on, all of God's people, all of his elect people trusted by faith and looked forward to the fulfillment of that promise. They looked forward by faith to the coming of the Son of God. That he would come and undo the curse of the fall. They looked forward to the coming Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, Christ Jesus, the one that was promised and the one that came, the one who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, securing for us a righteousness that we couldn't own, the one who, who went to the cross and died to make atonement for our sins, the one who satisfied the wrath of God, the one who was raised from the dead, proving that God keeps his promises. The one who is right now at the hand of the Father, interceding for us, those who trust in him. This ought to be enough to motivate us to sell out for the cause of Christ as well. But Paul isn't done yet. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who is the testimony before Pontius Pilate, who made a good confession. Not only is Christ's fulfillment, is Christ the fulfillment of God's promise? He is also our example of faithfulness. Because Jesus made the good and faithful confession about the truth, about who he is before Pontius Pilate. And he did so fully aware of the danger that lay ahead, knowing what this confession is going to bring him, knowing that his confession would bring his death. But in spite of that, he made the good confession. Jesus not only is the fulfillment of God's promise, he is the example for us to follow in our own lives. As we live for Christ or on mission for him, confessing him as Lord, at some point, it may cost us something. It has for the Christians in Afghanistan. It has for the Christians in China. And it is increasingly in the Western world, specifically in places like Canada and Australia, of all places. But we're to be faithful in our calling despite the dangers because Christ was faithful. And we are to be faithful until Christ returns, which reminds me of the very last thing I want to point out that Paul said. And that is the promise that Jesus, the Son of God, is coming back. Paul says, I charge in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is the testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. The reason why we are to do what we are to do and the reason why Timothy is to fulfill his ministry, the reason why we can sell it for Christ is because he's coming back for us. That's the promise that we're holding on to. That's the promise that we all look forward to. That there will be a time when Christ comes back to take his home and, and that our sanctification finally will be complete and will be glorified and live forever in his presence free from the influence and the impact of sin. That is the blessed hope that we all await. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If that's not enough, Romans 8, 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. And then Revelation chapter 2, verses 3, verse 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with, will, will be with them as their God, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is why we labor for Christ with our eyes towards the heavens. This is why we are to be all in, giving ourselves completely over to the task of service. We are waiting for the return of the King because Jesus has promised to come back for us to finish what He began in us. Now, there are lots of people who have lots of ideas of how this is going to happen, whether that's premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial. I want you to understand it doesn't matter. What matters is this, that Christ is coming back for us. And he will come back for us either at his return or when he calls you home through your individual death. Christ is coming for you. And that's more than enough reason to be faithful and finish the mission. And again, I will remind you of the hymn as it says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Your motivation, my motivation, our motivation to do what we do for God is who he is in his glory and what he in his grace has done for us. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.